Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. And this is the home of Bold Cinema. I got it. Only took me like eight episodes to All get right. the home of Bold Cinema. There it is. Let's get started. Uh, today on the show, we are talking about Guillermo del Toro's latest film, The Shape of Water. Uh, we also both went and saw our own movies. We didn't actually go see the same <laughs> movie. So I'm going to talk about Darkest Hour. You will be talking about the Christian Bale film Hostels. Uh, but before that, let's get to the news. First things first, Andy. I was going to have the news stories pulled up, but I didn't. I missed the mark. All right, I got it. Uh, U.S. movie ticket sales in 2017 were the lowest they've been in 25 years. Since 1992, according to Box Office Mojo, uh, according to the website's calculations, 1.239 billion movie tickets were sold between January 1st and December 31st from last year. A mild drop from 2016, but significant when considering the trend. Um, This brings us down to the lowest ticket sales have been in 25 years. Uh, What do you think? Well, I mean, times are changing. We have so many outlets to entertain ourselves. There's... Just so many, so many ways to keep yourself occupied. There is, I mean, tons of streaming options. There is um, the internet, YouTube, YouTube stardom, uh, handheld devices. There's just so many other options besides going to the movies these days. And and the film industry isn't the only victim of that either. Right. I it, We've been naysayers on this show of a service like MoviePass because despite how great it sounds, the fact is like you have to wonder if you can justify that time. Um, a lot of people can't. A lot of people just aren't going to the movies as much as they used to be. And you're absolutely right with all of the alternatives out there, not even going towards handheld devices, which is a whole other ballpark. Yeah, just Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, HBO. What do you need to go to the movies for? Yeah, they, you know, like you, you stay the in. Conveni- it's the convenience factor. Uh, you know that I know that theaters are toying around with this idea of having same day releases for a much higher price, something you, you would pay thirty or forty bucks to see a new release in your own home, you know, for a premium. But it, depending on the size of your group or the size of your family, um, or how long you have to drive to get to a theater, that's probably a pretty good deal. Say, oh, okay, you know, I'll invite some friends over, pay thirty bucks to see the latest blockbuster in my the comfort of my own home, and not have to buy expensive snacks or put up with rude people or drive anywhere. Uh, You know, it's hard to contend with. Right. And it's funny. I want to make sure I get to this at some point. I think I should make my claim now in both of the movies I saw this weekend. I had like eight people in the audience with me and, and at least two of them were awful and talked the whole movie. And I'll get to that when we talk about the movies, but it's that kind of experience that makes me think, you know what? This, this isn't worth it. It just isn't like, it's not going to be the way I want it to be. It's going to be terrible. I'm going to have to deal with people who can't compose themselves in a theater, like an adult or a true, a true cinephile. So for me, yeah, like even, even as somebody who watches movies alone or, or with just like my significant other, for 30 bucks to see a movie in my house, like I'd probably just do that, honestly, and just uh, pray the premium to not have to watch it um, with, you know, people who are disrespectful. Yeah, yeah and, and so, that's yeah. the same thing I dealt with. So I saw two movies this week, uh, Shape of Water and Hostels, and I had issues in both films with moviegoers. And, you know, theaters are always thinking of how can we improve the experience? You know, they put in recliners and better sound and alcohol bars and those things are helping, but the number one deterrent for me is other people's behavior. <laughs> right. You you probably watched it. I forget. 
what video it was, but it was recent. It was a video on the internet uh, by my boys at Red Letter Media, which I'm a <laughs> huge fan of. Uh, and I've started to turn you on to, too, so I appreciate that you like them. And they were talking about, I think it's their 2017 year in review, Half in the Bag. They were talking about how theaters someday, like in an alternate universe, would set up like a premium membership that you have to like get screened to be a part of and like make <laughs> sure that you're not like a total jerk and that you're willing to sit in a movie quietly for two hours and, and enjoy it for what it is. And I thought to myself, man, I would love it if a theater did that. Like you had to like pass a screening process to be a part of the movie theater and you could only go if you were super legit and you could get thrown out of the you know, service if you weren't, because I'd sign up for something like that. Because I can't stand going to the movies with people who won't just watch the movie and be respectful. It kills me. Well, and there's some movies where that's okay. You know, a lot of blockbusters or tent poles. You know, the the audience getting into it is is part of it. But you know, when you're sitting down to see a more serious film, yeah, you want people to stop talking to get off their phones, stop getting up every two minutes. Right. I think. Real quick, I, I want to look this up, and I don't have this information readily available, but I want to see what movies were particularly popular in 1992. I'm curious, all right? Let's, let's humor me, won't you? T2, there, that would have been uh, Terminator 2. Was it really Terminator 2, James Cameron? I'm, I'm pretty sure. Here, let me let me with the top top five or ten here. Number one, Aladdin by Disney, Home Alone two, Batman Returns, Lethal Weapon three, A Few Good Men, Sister Act, The Bodyguard, Wayne's World, Basic Instinct, A League of Their Own. So there's a lot that was going on then, um, and that's not you know ne- necessarily the best movies that came out here. That was just you know top ten at the box office. It's interesting that that's where we're at now. We're sliding back that way because we were doing really well. We were we were coming on the upswing there. There's movies in there about female empowerment, black female empowerment. If you look at Sister Act, there's a couple of sequels. But for the most part, like things are looking pretty good. And I thought this year at the movies wasn't so bad. I thought 2017 did pretty good. But the fact is, people just they're just they not going go for it. If there's a cheaper alternative. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I thought it was a great year for film, particularly the summer. I felt last summer 2016 was kind of weak. Uh, but this summer, I mean, I saw a lot. I saw at least two to three maybe four things in July, even in the theater. So, it, you know, it's it was a good year for film. There's definitely a ton to see, but like you said, some a lot of people just, they're not going. Yeah, and doing something like this, honestly working on this podcast, has given me an excuse to go to the movies, and it's reminded me of a lot of, a lot of a lot that I've forgotten since since getting out of film school. A lot that I've got, you know, I haven't been going to the movies as much, and there's a lot there that's that's worth, I, can, I think, hanging on to and remembering is, you know, film is really going to an incredible place, I think. Um, but at the same time, my God, like I would so much rather just pay extra and stay at home or pay less and stay at home in the, in the case of something like Netflix or Hulu, which are producing their own films. Right. So yeah, I guess not a big surprise there. Bummer, but maybe that's for the best. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens and see how theaters cope. Uh, yeah. cause we'll probably run into a time where a lot of theaters will probably start closing and maybe you just have like really big multiplexes in really high population areas. Right. I'm hoping we either, we have those and we have little art house theaters as well. A little bit of both. Yeah. Cause yeah. I, I hope, I hope places like the Angelica stay open because I think there's real value in what they do. And I think people like you and I who go to that kind of theater, like would want to support it. Yeah. Um, but 
I don't know. Moving on, uh, our next story is actually about Netflix, believe it or not. Following the success of Bright, which we talked about last week, Netflix is officially moving forward with a sequel. Will Smith and Joel Edgerton are attached to reprise their roles, which is interesting. David Ayer is returning to write and direct the second installment. The first one was written by Max Landis, so this one's going to be written by the director of the previous, David Ayer. Um, that's about it. Netflix teased the announcement with a video of Orcs auditioning for the sequel. I, I haven't watched that video. I, I kind of don't care. The makeup's good. Great yeah. for orcs. I, um, I did watch that yeah. video. It's it's clever. It's funny. Nice. So yeah, they're they're going to do a sequel to Bright, and I think the big reason they're going to do this isn't because Bright was particularly well received. In fact, a lot of people didn't like it. It was often referred to as the worst reviewed film of 2017. It's because it hit the numbers, yeah. and this brings up an interesting conversation about Netflix. If a movie's not particularly popular, but enough people watch it. What does that mean? That it's worth making a second one, even though well, it the means first it, one wasn't that good. It means that it was it, that it was popular, even if it wasn't critically acclaimed, right? Because, and again, we've talked about this before, where we don't have any frame of reference with Netflix numbers, and like we don't know what their goals are, how many viewers see anything. Like they, they don't release any kind of numbers or any kind of background, so it's we're kind of stabbing in the dark, trying to guess what is and isn't a success. Um, right. but you know, it must have helped my, my theory is that it helps their, their properties help keep you viewers or get new viewers. And so if enough people watch something, then they'll continue to invest in that. And I remember reading that bright was envisioned as a, a franchise or they wanted to franchise out the, the property, the film. Right. They wanted to make a, a universe for it as they do, which is, a little concerning coming from Netflix, considering they signed that like six film Adam Sandler deal. Like clearly they're not afraid to just make more of the same if they know it works. Um, and for something like Bright, I guess that's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, like I like the universe of Bright. I think it's a clever kind of idea. And even though I didn't really as much like the execution of the plot within the film, like the world building is clever and there's a lot they can do with it, which is why it surprised me to see Will Smith and Joel Edgerton are attached to a prize. I figured they'd just be like, well, let's tell a new story in that same universe, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe that would be a clever way to go, but uh, I guess that's something we can look forward to down the line. I can't imagine Will Smith and Joel Edgerton are going to be attached to this forever, but clearly they're getting enough money to do it, even though it wasn't reviewed that well. Um, maybe it's a passion product for both of them. Maybe Netflix can afford it because so many people watched it. I don't know. Um, yeah. But it's intriguing. A movie that was reviewed very poorly gets a sequel. Right, well, so yeah, it's also important to remember that Netflix has deeper pockets than a lot of studios. They've consistently outbid other other studios, other companies on lots of properties, not just Bright. And it's important to remember they outbid the I think second place was 60 million and they bid 30 million more at 90 million for the property. So, yeah, I mean they can afford to kind of take chances that a lot of other studios can't. Mm. Looking at this article, it's from Variety. They said, and I don't have the source directly on this, but they said uh, Nielsen did did ratings on Bright. I guess they can do that from Netflix. I don't know. But they said that uh, the movie came out on December 22nd. It was viewed by 11 million people in three days. That's pretty good for three days of release. I can't say that movie would get that kind of play if it was at the box office. Um, Does that mean it's, it's just, I don't know. I guess it's a different bar of quality than what we're normally used to. You know, a movie gets a sequel if it does well and people like it. Um, A movie doesn't get a sequel if it does poorly uh, or people didn't like it. But in this case, people didn't seem to really like it, but it's getting a sequel anyway. I don't know what that means exactly. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and it's That's it's like I said, there there's no rubric, there's no guideline. We we don't really know what any of their numbers mean. Like what what does a million eleven million viewers translate into the box office if it were a traditional film? How much money would that really be? You know, I don't I don't really know. <laughs> um, right. So yeah, like I said, they're they're in their own they're in their own, on their own planet, and they can kind of do what they want. And if they see something that helps them keep keep viewers and they're going to continue down that line Mm -hmm. so yeah i guess that's all i have to say about that moving on our last story of the day uh dc fans (laughs) (laughs) i i think i have the wrong article pulled up for this but i'm going to go for it anyway this is actually a follow-up to it i think what you sent me was a little bit more accurate but dc fans decided to protest outside of the warner brothers studios in california to hashtag release the snyder cut the Zack snyder cut of justice league which i think is great now you sent me this story this morning (laughs) i found this a couple days ago and i'm curious to see what you have to think about it first so what do you got well to continue off our conversation of from last week about our kind of the toxicity of fandoms this is an extension of that i mean really there's people outside of a studio protesting to get a certain director's cut release which by the way doesn't even exist it's not like he made his cut, and then they didn't like it. It's like, no, he never finished the film. It doesn't exist. There's large portions that were never filmed. There's lots of special effects and CGI never inserted. There is no cut. So they're asking for something that doesn't exist at all. Right. And and that's what I love so much about this is, one, just the seemingly absolute lack of understanding in how a film is made. Yeah, there's no, like, completed cut sitting on a shelf somewhere. There's no, like, cut that somebody was like, oh, wow, well, the movie's done and everything, but we're not going to use that. It was, like, maybe two-thirds of the way made, three-fourths at best, right, before yeah. they brought Joss Whedon in to kind of kind of clean it up a little bit. Um, yeah, what do you mean release this? There's no, there's no completed Zack Snyder cut. Now, given if they were to release, like, or maybe leak, which would be, I think, the best way to put this out, if they were going to, some kind of, like, just half-hearted string of scenes together that looks like that's you know placed in order of justice league the way snyder wanted to do it that would be cool to click through but it wouldn't be any kind of complete experience or even semi-complete experience it would just be a a, a, a jumble of of, of half color corrected scenes with a timestamp <laughs> on the bottom well and um, we, we talked about what you call a movie we talked about this uh, last week with uh uh Deli, denny Villeneuve and the four hour cut of Blade Runner 2049, you know, he, he initially made it and then he scrapped it. And we, we have the two and a half hour film, you know, but that's a, at one point was at least a completed project. You know, there was a four hour cut somewhere, but there is nothing. There is not a complete film. And then there's people in costume outside the studios protesting. Right, they were cosplaying, and to be fair, this guy in this Batman suit actually looks pretty good. And I think that's an important note to make here. This was something that was like, I mean, I had seen an article about this like earlier last week about, hey, this thing's going to happen, check it out. It was pushed by a couple YouTubers and some other passionate fans. Uh, In the photo that was released from this, quote, peaceful protest, there's 13 people. If you count (laughs) the person taking the photograph, that is 14 people that showed up for this event. 14 people real passionate. Exactly, who wanted them to release the Snyder Cut. So DC's not going to do it. Given what I like to see it, you know, maybe. Kind of like the uh, the black and chrome cut from Mad Max Fury Road. If they could throw it on a Blu-ray or something, that'd be great. But, like, 
It's not going to happen. It's a bummer, I think. I, I would kind of like to see what Zack Snyder's original vision was before Joss Whedon came in and tweaked it. But again, it's not like it's just done and sitting somewhere. It's It just didn't happen. Like It wasn't completed. The other There's th- so many processes of editing they have to go through to get to a completed film, and all of that didn't happen because Joss Whedon took over. So that's it. There's no there's no Zack Snyder cut. Didn't happen. No well, cut. well, the other thing is that if it were you know like a really great film... Uh, or something with some deleted scenes, like we said, Blade Runner or It. Uh, but no, it it's a really mediocre movie <laughs> that people are asking for an extended cut. Right. Or, or a slightly different cut. It's like, come on, man. Well, I think, to be fair, extended, I think Zack Snyder's cut was supposed to be longer, right? I thought Joss Whedon trimmed it down, or maybe yes. I got that backwards. No, I think that's correct. Yeah, it's... And, like, the Snyder cut is not going to save Justice League. Like, it, it's a movie that had problems and... They did the best they could to clean them up. It's probably not going to get much better. That's like if Solo comes out and you're like, release the Lord Miller cut. Like, stop. <laughs> you're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> They're not going to do that. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, it's wishful thinking. And, and yeah, would I like to see that? Sure. Uh, at least some of the stuff that he had. Why not? It'd be great if like, um, I don't know. You know how they make, they make VFX reels? Like VFX artists will do that out of yeah. like Mad Max Fury Road. It'd be great if they had something like that, like a compare and contrast they could throw out there. It's a couple minutes long. Like, I'd watch that. Why not? Yeah, here's here's a scene as Zack Snyder wanted it. Here's how Joss Whedon wanted it. That'd be kind of cool. Like, sure. But like, come on. A hashtag and a Snyder cut. Get out of here. It's, it kind of seems like you're just doing it for press. And for the sake of fandom, I guess, um, as toxic as that can be. Yeah, they, so, you know, yeah. you know, th- there's this idea um, of you know hardcore about being hardcore, <laughs> and that that's what a lot of these these fandoms uh, feel like. It's like you're not actually hardcore about the property; you just want it, want everyone else to know that you're hardcore. Right. You're 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 just you're just a bigger fan than everybody else. Well sure. done. Yeah, you've won the internet. Yeah. Moving on to our first movie of. The week, uh, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. Andy, do you want to take the summary on this one or should I? Uh, you take it. Okay. Uh, I, In its simplest form, without all of the Guillermo del Toro-ness of it, uh... The Shape of Water is a story about a a lonely, mute, uh, essentially maid or janitor who forms a, rene- a, a, a relationship with a underwater, mysterious underwater creature at a mysterious facility where she works and uh, tries to... Yeah, just has this relationship with this character. I think, I think one of the trailers kind of reveals a lot more plot than I'm letting yeah. on, and I, I don't know if I should... No, I, I think that, that's but... okay because it happens about halfway through the film. You know, it's it's revealed that they kind of want to dissect this thing, and she tries. She wants to free it and not have it, you know, be killed by these, uh, you know, mysterious government people. Right. It is a it is a love story between a a woman and a fish man. <laughs> right. And the people I went and saw this movie with could not get past that, and, and I don't know if that's where we should start talking about it, but. Guillermo del Toro is the shape of water. Anybody who's familiar with Guillermo del Toro knows he's a little quirky as far as his movies go. He, he's, he's definitely skilled in world building, um, and he's definitely a fan of the odd, the unique, the mysterious, the supernatural often, um, the and mythical. Mo- the, and yeah. monsters. 
Right, and monsters, and this movie is no exception to that. Um, Andy, what? Yeah, what did you think of The Shape of Water? Um, I I really enjoyed it. Um, I it drew me in. The, the romance is yeah, it's a bit strange, but their whole relationship is about this communication. Um, I think it's interesting that because she's mute, um, the story has to be told primarily through what you see and what you hear and that, you know, there's not a ton of exposition. Uh, yes, she does do sign language, but that's a small part of, of the communication. Um, uh, there, there's just so many elements that I like the world that, that they they're in. Everything feels wet all the time. Um, yeah. They work in this mysterious government building. It's it's around the early '60s. Um, you know, the floor looks wet all the time. Everything looks damp, and I, it reminded me of the uh, video game Bioshock, which takes place in an underwater dystopia where mm-hmm. there's water leaking everywhere. And that's kind of how I felt in in this. Um, I love the score. It, it has a very uh, kind of older romantic style score. It reminded me of Amelie. Uh, strangely enough, um, for some reason, like the the look of it. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I was really taken in by the story. And like all great movies, there's lots of underlying themes. You know, there's themes of, of loneliness and love and affection, as well as other period issues like racism and sexism and general bigotry and, you know, kind of government distrust. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much in there and I, I really liked it and I was on board with the, the, the kind of odd romance. Right. I think there's a lot to unpack in this movie, so let's just kind of stumble through it the best we can. Uh, first off, I, I get where you're coming from with Bioshock. I was, I'm a tremendous Bioshock fan. So I, I, that definitely drew me to just the first trailer, like the font style, the music, the look of it, the underwater feel. Um, a lot of it does kind of draw inspiration from that. And Guillermo del Toro is a big video game fan as well. So I oh, okay. he probably had something to do with that. But um, The Shape of Water is set in, I think, 1956. Bioshock is set in 1959. So they're both very, yeah, they're very similar in setting, um, which I think is important. So if you're a Bioshock fan, check this movie out. Outside of Bioshock, now that I've gushed about video games for much too long. <laughs> um, I thought... One of the most incredible things about this movie, just the first thing that really stood out to me was the lighting. If you don't really know lighting in movies, if you maybe want to get to know it better, if you're a student studying lighting and film, like check this movie out because the lighting in this movie is incredible. He uses so many different like colors of light and light shimmering through windows, light coming through floorboards, light coming through water. Um, it's it's played so deftly and it's it, it's, it's, it reminds me of what Mark Kermode had to say about um, Edgar Wright and Baby Driver. It's like if Guillermo del Toro was a card dealer at a casino, he plays with light like they would do card flourishes. Like It's like just showing off how, right. how good he is at it. It's, it's really incredible. And also to follow that, practical effects. There's a handful of practical effects in this movie, not to mention Doug Jones as the creature, which is incredible, that are really, really well done, that look very convincing. Um there's a part in this movie, uh, well, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, well, but just, the, the just practical how, effects are crazy good. Right. Well, just how, like how it takes place in, in the you know mid-50s, like you said, and everything looks at, like the, the desks, the chairs, the, the way people walk and the way they, they dress and how everything's that kind of weird green metal. I don't know if things were made out of like copper or something back yeah. in the day, but 
it's where everything metal is kind of has that green tint and that kind of br- brings me to another thing is the uh the color green is very prominent throughout the film especially specifically in the government facility but also without and i couldn't really figure out what exactly it meant because usually something like green will represent money um but it's something that that we kind of see all all throughout. And to continue what you said about light, um, I'm, I want to talk about Michael Shannon real quick. Uh, there's, there, <laughs> oh, there's, let's please there, let's there's talk a scene, about Michael Shannon. There, well, there's a scene where he's in in the car, um, and there's it, there's pouring rain, and the camera is kind of seeing him through the window. And because of the distortion of the light and the rain and the color, he actually kind of starts to look like the monster. He looks like the the sea monster, and it's an interesting juxtaposition because even though he's human, he is a monstrous character. And there's a couple of scenes like that where he, like I said, he looks like the monster because of the distortion of, of what you get through windows and, and rain. Um, and that's right. goes into what you were talking about, the, the, the lighting. Yeah. I, I would like to talk about characters for a moment. And, and this has to be preceded, I think by performances. I thought the performances in this movie were crazy good. I hate to say, um, I'm really turned into a Michael Shannon fanboy and he kind of stole the show in a lot of scenes. <laughs> like I could not look away from the epicness that was Michael Shannon. Christine went and saw it with me and she doesn't really know him. Uh-huh. And she was like, that guy was straight, pure, pure evil in this movie. And I'm like, that's, what's great about Michael Shannon because it's not easy to be an actor and convince people you're a bad guy. Like it's yeah. hard to be a bad guy, a good bad guy in a movie. And Michael Shannon does it brilliantly in this as do the other characters playing good characters. A lot of their characters like you believe in, you know, and you, you, you hope for them and hope they'll be successful. The characters are written fantastically and, and played even better. Well, he's, he's so intimidating. I mean, he's really tall. He's six, four or so. Um, so he just towers over everyone and he does that thing where, you know, he'll go over to a character and lean down, you know, has to lean down five or six inches to get to their ear and whisper very, you know, sternly. It's just, it's, he's man, he's an intimidating guy, even when he's playing a good guy. Cause last year, I remember he was in Nocturnal Animals and, uh, as the sheriff or, um, police officer kind of detective figure. Which he was it, great in, by the way. Yeah. And I mean, he's kind of a gray area character in the, in that but it's, it's still so intimidating um and, and it's it's amazing just because he speaks in like this kind of slow monotone tone voice but then he has these eruptions of of anger um that he's kind of well known for but yeah he's such a convincing villain and and this person just such an intimidating actor Right, and this whole movie has this kind of sheen of Guillermo del Toro weirdness over it, but one of the things I really liked is, one, the way Michael Shannon's intimidating character bounces off of Sally Hawkins' very reserved, very quiet, of course, because she's mute. Um, Oh, man, I totally forgot her name. Starts with an I. Eliza? Oh, no, Eliza. Starts with an E, I'm sorry. Eliza, yes. I was getting too passionate and lost track of myself. Um, But I really like the way... Michael Shannon's normalcy is presented in a way as, as bad versus kind of the weirdness of these other characters. Eliza is mute, she's quiet, she's reserved, and she lives above a movie theater, which is, there's a whole lot of imagery there. She lives next to a guy who is a kind of an artist who is balding, he's kind of at the end of his life. She works with a woman who is uh, black in 1956, which is not an easy position to be in who's kind of struggling in her marriage. These characters are all weird, and they're kind of outcasts. They're kind of 
they're kind of on their own. And then Michael Shannon, meanwhile, is supposed to be the bad guy in the movie, and he has has a nuclear family. He's got a wife and two kids. He's got he he buy you know he's got a new car. I think they might have a dog. Like he's <laughs> normal. Yeah, that and a, they're weird and abnormal. And the normal one is the one who's the bad guy in this movie. The people who are strange are your heroes. Yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition because, like you said, he has, you know, two point five kids and a home and a nice wife, and it's it very conservative. And yeah, I mean, like you said, he's the villain, and then all the other characters that live in these strange uh, kind of places are are normal, or just or they're the good guys. Um, right, and that. I wanted to talk, touch on something. There's this uh, theme of kind of repressed sexuality throughout the whole yes. film. Def- yeah, um, presented very early in the film. <laughs> yes, you, and by yeah. all, all characters, including uh, Michael Shannon's uh, character. Like, his relationship with his wife is is quite weird. But that's an, another theme that it generally isn't touched on in, in a lot of films. That, because it's, it's not about being sexy, necessarily. It's just about the, the kind of primitive desire for human touch and human compassion. Um, but it's a very interesting thing that is brought up again and again throughout the film. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And that was, this does kind of lead into somewhere. I thought the film maybe was a little heavy handed or maybe, maybe the opposite. Maybe they were too sly with it. There's a lot of like metaphorical imagery in this movie. There's a lot, just like you said, how, how it seems like every scene is wet. People are drinking water Every time uh, Eliza looks at the back of her calendar, there's a quote on there because it's like a daily inspirational calendar. It's related to water somehow. In their locker room, there's posters and it's like, don't let the ship sink. And it's a water thing. Like, it rains. Water is all over this movie. And these characters kind of have, I don't know, they they each have their own motivations. and, And there's a lot of, like, philosophy. And there's a lot of, like, yeah, sexually repressed themes there's a lot to unpack and it did get to a point for me where I thought to myself, okay, in a two hour film, maybe they just went one or two too far. It's like, it's it's a little too much. There's a little too much like introspective reality there. What what did you think? Um, It didn't really bother me. I I guess I liked that there were a lot of themes that they were complex, but they were still kind of um, at under the film, the, you know, the the main story is still the focus, but you get a little bit of you know these issues of of race, issues of sexism, issues of repressed sexuality, and then, like I said, the distrust of government. Because there's also some uh, foreign figures and foreign governments involved in this uh, situation as as well, and there's there's distrust all all around. Um, right. So the, there is a lot in there, but I, I definitely appreciated it. I really. Gosh, I don't know if I have enough uh, enough good things to say about this movie. Honestly, that was the only slight I have. I think it was the only thing that I felt like was a little little too laid on a little too thick. Um, I loved the way this movie just drew me in, and I, and this is something in a way I would compare it to Bright because in Bright I loved the world building, but the plot was too like I couldn't I couldn't keep up with it. I didn't I didn't like it so much. It wasn't really for me, but I appreciated it was an original story that took a swing at it. You know, it yeah. stepped up to the ball and, and it had a little bit of confidence. This movie does everything I wanted Bright to do so much better. The plot and and the world and the characters that are in it feel so natural that it, it genuinely draws you in. And by the time you get to a point where you've got a woman, you know, uh trying to build a relationship with a fish man <laughs> 
it's relatively believable within the world of the film. I'm like, this this sells, this plays. Like, you managed to, to suspend my disbelief and convince me that this is something that could be happening in the terms of the boundaries you've set. And it it works, and it works so well. And, and I, I, I really don't have enough good things to say about it. I, I thought it was an original film that... Like when I said we need more movies like Bright, we need more movies to try. We need more movies like Shape of Water. We need more movies to try and succeed. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, kind of the last thing I wanted to touch on um, is Sally Hawkins' character. Uh, you know, she's mute. Uh, she speaks in, primarily in, in sign language. Um, and, and I just thought it was great to have, you know, a female, uh, you know, vocally challenged character to be the lead of, of this film and for it not to feel exploitative. Because I feel like there's been a number of films in in the last recent years that do this kind of uh, with autism, and they treat it like it's a superpower. And it, uh, I think of The Accountant comes to mind, uh, which I never saw, but I I read a lot of complaints ab- about this. Where well, you're kind of displaying this uh, this disability as uh, like it's a superpower and not like um, you know you mean ben, you mean Ben Affleck's The Accountant? Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and and other and other films, and it, and also in TV, and and it's not just autism. There's other other things where they don't really treat, uh, I think, this subject with respect, or they try to make make it. They try to exploit it more than just, um, you know, just show the character as or as they are. Because you know, Sally Hawkins' character, she, she's not defined by her lack of of voice, and it's part of a larger character. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so, I know people have said it was well played, um, but man, really well done. Yeah, for, for being somebody who, as I understand it, probably doesn't know sign language. Um, when you finally do get some moment, moments of expression from Eliza, because she's a very quiet, reserved character, it pays off because her performance is convincing leading up to those moments. And when she finally, you know, starts throwing sign language out really fast when she's frustrated at something or when she hits her hand against a wall... Um, it resonates with you and you feel that emotion along with her. Um, really well performed, really well written, uh, really well shot. That's a really good movie. I think. What do you, yeah. no, what do you, I, what do you think? <laughs> no, definitely. Uh, definitely one of the best things of the year before we get to, agreed before we get to whether or not you'd recommend it. And I, pretty confident i know what your answer is i do want to ask you about your screening experience. You said you had some, oh. <laughs> yeah, I did up. Go ahead. So, so I get to the theater and there's a mild amount of people in there. It wasn't a real busy showing. Um, two people come in about 20 minutes after the film has started. So this is about 30 minutes after, you know, trailers and all that. So shouldn't even have been let in. But 30, <laughs> 30, 35 minutes. Uh, these guys come in and they sit right next to me, which is fine. Then one of them gets up and leaves twice to go buy snacks. And more snacks. Wow! Like yeah. <laughs> so he comes. So he comes in with snacks, eats them all, which in, involved a lot of wrestling, and then <laughs> and then did it two more times. And I was just like, you know, this is why this is why theaters are dying right now. <laughs> right. This is the death of cinema. <laughs> um, that's fantastic. I oh god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Of course, they sat next to you, but even if they had been across the way, like you can hear that kind of stuff in a theater. Anytime I have to open a package in a theater, I feel terrible. And I try to do it during like a particularly loud scene, and like you know, rip a rip a bag of almonds open or something when there's an explosion, just to kind of you know sneak it by people. You got to be. Ugh. I'm getting I'm getting steamed about this. My experience was this. I went and saw this movie. 
at 9:45 at a little little like 16 screen theater basically out in the middle of nowhere because I thought this was a wide wide release. It's not. This is a limited release film. It is it it, it I went and saw it at a Cinemark so it runs under the Cine Arts kind of platform they have for right. artistic films. It is not at every theater. I I find this is the fourth theater I found. I ended up seeing okay, they had The Shape of Water. I went and saw it on a Wednesday at 9:45 at night. And Christine and I were going to see this, and she said, you know, you think anybody's going to be in there? I said, probably a couple people, but for the most part, no. I mean, who's, who's going to be at this, at this shape of water at 945 on a Wednesday in nowhere, Texas? And turns out I was pretty much right. Uh, there were four <laughs> other people in the theater in the back. And it was a small theater. It was quaint, which I thought was a great way to see this movie. If I had seen this movie in a packed theater with a bunch of people, it would have been terrible. It's a great movie to kind of watch and, and kind of just appreciate for yourself or maybe with one other person. There were two people in the back, a man and a woman. I think they were, you know, probably in their 40s or so. They were fine. There were two people behind us who I think were about my age or your age, 20s, 30s maybe. Uh, it's two women that had come to see this movie. And any time, I mean, they, they made comments on occasion, but pretty much any time we had the pivotal relationship in the film, Eliza bonding with the fish, the fish man, uh... They laughed, They're chuckling, <laughs> making comments to themselves, and like every time, I just want to turn, like, I just want to turn around. But you, you know what movie you came and saw, <laughs> right? You don't come to nowhere, Texas, to watch a movie at nine forty-five at night called The Shape of Water. Like you knew what this was, you knew what you were getting into. It's like just be quiet and and watch it you know like uh, laugh afterwards laugh on the way home laugh all you want i don't care but like during the movie like audibly making noise like mocking what's happening on screen i couldn't stand it they See, might as well have been booing or hissing i mean if, if i so that's the kind of thing if that happens near me i immediately i'll turn around and just give someone the stink eye right and you're yeah you do that i, I i'm that, not one of those people. yeah i mean someone's I just, someone's gonna fight me one day but you know we'll, right. i'll let you know how that goes when it happens. They'll, they'll fight you in the parking lot <laughs> yeah i i'm not that way i i a couple times in my life i've made i've made complaints like gone and said hey there's these people who won't be quiet for the most part i just sit there and take it because i'm like well i'm enjoying the movie enough for that to bother me i should probably just keep watching the movie you know and like hopefully they'll stop which is terrible but Spe- yeah that was speaking of which brutal. i when we get to hostels i have a a story about people laughing in the theater as well. Well, before we get to hostels, uh, we should do our <laughs> death of cinema. Segment. Before death that, of Andy, cinema. Would you, would you recommend the shape of water? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. As, as would I, it is a treat. I feel like we're um, going to recommend most films we watch because we tried to only see good films. Yeah. Because we try to see only good movies. Maybe we should sneak in a couple bad movies every once in a while. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even to be fair, even Bright, if Bright had been a like a cinema release, if I had paid to go see it in a movie theater, I might not have recommended it. The yeah, fact that it's on probably Netflix would, is yeah. what I made agree that, that easy for me. Yeah, so it's usually a recommendation with you know some some caveats, I suppose. The Death of Cinema. We need some kind of bumper or music for this. We really do. Uh, you brought this one up. I, I want to talk about it in news, and you said, no, no, that's stupid. Let's not, because it's a stupid thing. We shouldn't talk about it. For anybody listening is probably aware, the Golden Globes happened last night. Yes. Uh, <laughs> hiss. I didn't know you weren't so much a fan of the Golden Globes. I learned something. Um, the Golden Globes are, of course, a cinema award ceremony similar to the Oscars. But and TV. It's... <laughs> 
and TV, but not because they do TV and it's just not the Oscars. And it turns out you're not a fan of the Golden Globes. Not at all. What's not to like? It just seems like it's like the poser version of the Oscars. I mean, it comes out about a month, month and a half before the Oscars, which have so much like glitz and glamour. And it's it's also important to know that every award show, including the Oscars, is a cash grab. Like it's all business. It's all meant to to generate awareness and money of the films or whatever if it's the Grammys or country music, whatever it is. It's it's a show and it's business. And that's they don't really want people to know that because they want people to fight and argue about, oh no, this film was the best. No, this film. And really they just like we don't really care. We just want more people to buy this product or we, we want to, you know, have celebrities wearing these gowns or it's a business. Um, that being said, the golden globes are just so tedious. There are, well, first I don't like that they do film and TV. There's just way too many categories. They have multiple, um, even in the film film categories, they have motion picture or sorry, they have drama and like best musical or comedy and actor supporting actor and actresses for all those categories. And it's almost, too many films that they're recognizing, and at the same time, they also seem to leave out a lot of the best films of the year. This year, particularly, Blade Runner 2049 is nowhere to be found in anything, right. not not even the technical awards or the writing or anything like that, which I think it is a tragedy. Right. The, the further we get away from Blade Runner 2049's theatrical release and the closer we seem to get to its home video release, the more I realize uh, how much I enjoyed it and how upset I get when it doesn't top somebody's top 10 list. I'm not saying it has, okay, I'm not saying it has to be in your top 10 list, but if you have a top, well, at the top, your top 10 list, but if you have a top 10 list of movies in 2017, it better be in your top five. <laughs> I, I lose respect for anybody who doesn't have it in their top five. I saw somebody's list the other day, somebody I went to film school with, somebody I normally respect, and they had it in like the number nine slot. I was like, get the hell out of here. I, w- I would put that movie top three easy. Probably number one, frankly. Like, oh my God, Blade, Tw- Blade Runner 2049 was cool. And to see, right. it doesn't even get a technical nom. It doesn't even get yeah. a best drama nom. Like, who who is watching movies this year? And where, this, are, where are we doing? And this happens a lot where movies that show up in the Golden Globe no- nominations are nowhere to be found, come off yeah. their time, and, and vice versa. Um, it's kind of a boring show. I'm a big fan of the Oscars. I, I watch the show. I've watched every Oscars since 2000, except last year. Last year was the first time in 16 years, 17 years that I missed the Oscar show. Because I, I right. really enjoy it. I enjoy like, the prestige and the glitz and glamour of the whole ordeal. And I, I enjoy that it takes four hours to go through. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> I enjoy I'm, that it takes four hours. I'm probably only, the only o- one. Only a true cinema lover would like that it takes four hours to get through a, <laughs> get through a show. Um, yeah, I... Normally, I, I haven't, to be frank, I haven't watched the Golden Globes or the Oscars in a few years. And a big reason for that is because they don't really do live streaming. Last year during the Oscars, I went looking and it was like, oh, download the ABC app. So I downloaded the ABC app so I could watch the Oscars. It turned out it wasn't available in my region because DFW isn't a good enough region to justify being able to watch the Oscars on the freaking internet. Legally, at least. I'm sure I could have found some kind of illegal stream on Twitter like I did with the Mayweather-McGregor fight. Um, I... I'd watch them if I could, honestly. If it was easy, I, I don't. I don't have television. I'm a cord cutter. So what am I supposed to do? And it's weird that the Oscars are kind of like left out for people like that. But then at the same time, and and the Globes, to be fair, then at the same time, it's not that strange considering 
they hate Netflix seemingly yeah. and uh, Hulu. So it doesn't really surprise me. They don't want, you know, true cinema lovers to watch this on the internet. How, how absurd. So yeah, uh, I would watch them if I could, but I can't, I didn't watch the globes. You didn't watch the globes, right? Right. So do you want to talk about some winners? <laughs> sure. Well, I, I want to talk about real quick. One of the issues, uh, this happened, I think it was either last year or the year before uh, when sure. the Martian got nominated for best musical or comedy of which it is not no. either either of those it's it's a it's a lighthearted drama um but you know a lot of the comedic a- actors and writers were upset because they said well this is our category and co- comedy doesn't get a lot of recognition or respect in in award shows in general um which is a shame and they were like, this was our one spot to kind of maybe get some recognition and limelight, and we're going to all lose to The Martian because it's a big movie starring Matt Damon. Right, which is, yeah, there's a whole lot of issues there. I had, I had that issue about, I think it was the Globes, uh, Golden Globes, um, maybe the Emmys, about um, Game of Thrones versus like Breaking Bad. I think those were both on at the same time. Because like one season, one of them wouldn't get on because... They started too late in the season, so even though it was that year, technically it didn't count, but then they could compete later against this other one, and it wasn't... Like, it gets real technical with, like, issue dates and release dates and whether something does or doesn't qualify for a certain category. Well, all of that sucks. That's all politics. It doesn't need to be there, frankly. Like, it just doesn't. Well, and then when you look at... And I forgot about... There was the controversy about Get Out that was nominated as a comedy, which is... It's a satirical... Uh, horror it's a horror movie with yeah, it is some, a horror film with some sets some commentary about uh race relations and you know looking at the rest of these the disaster artist is not a comedy again it's a light-hearted drama get out is definitely not a comedy i, I haven't seen i Tanya, but uh, again i i don't think it's supposed to be a comedy. yeah exactly and late and ladybird which is not a comedy either it's it's a dramatic coming of age story that again has light-hearted elements but it, it's just like these categories make no sense Right, like even if it passes the six laugh tests, that doesn't necessarily make it a comedy. It just doesn't. Like, there's a difference, and and yeah, I I, I don't really understand who categorizes these or what does or doesn't qualify it for any particular category. Um, those well, lines the, get blurred, and the worse that gets, the more I don't enjoy the show. Yeah, and the last film that's in that category, musical or comedy, is The Greatest Showman, uh, which is the P.T. Barnum, Barnum and Bailey Circus. Uh, film with Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. And it's been really poorly re- reviewed. I've heard it's just not very good, but it's because it's the only mu- real musical of out of that list. It's it's on there. Sure. So categories well, you make a solid point. Yeah, I don't yeah. really have anything to follow that. Categorization yeah. is a huge problem with with the Golden Globes. Right. So let's roll down some of these some of these winners. Uh do you have any that really stood out to you? You just want me to start going down the list. Um no, you can just go down the list. All right, best motion picture drama, the big one of the night, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Did you see this movie? I haven't, but I've heard it's really good. I've heard Francis McDormand. Yeah, I didn't is great. either. And now that yeah, I heard it was great before, and now that I've now that I've seen this, I, I think okay, I, I definitely need to check it out. Best motion picture musical comedy was Lady Bird. You did see that movie? Yeah, it wasn't a comedy. Um, it, it wasn't. There's a lot of funny moments, but it's um, it, there's a lot of really serious but kind of heartbreaking moments as well. Right, but it, it's really good. But it, it seems to me like said, it almost seems like a, 
Yeah, it almost seems like a bummer that it gets relegated to this category. It kind of deserves the drama title. I'm not saying it would win necessarily, but it sucks that it's just kind of thrown in there to, to get a Golden Globe so they can print it on the freaking DVD cover. Winner of Golden Globe, Best Motion Picture, and then real small parentheses, musical or comedy. Yeah. I mean, it's, come on. Best performance by an actress in a motion picture drama, Frances McDormand, which is great. Best performance by an actor in a motion picture drama, Gary Oldman, Darkest Hour, which we'll be talking about in a second, I guess. Um, best actress motion picture musical comedy, Lady Bird. Sarah Sar- Ronan, is that how you say her name? Uh, Saoirse. Saoirse. I never would have got that right. It's like yeah. Ryan Johnson. Yeah, it's um, uh, <laughs> it's um, uh, Irish, I believe. Right. Best director, Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water. Well done, sir. I frankly, I think that's pretty well earned. I, I don't know if you were the best out of these people in here, which include Christopher Nolan of Dunkirk, uh, Steven Spielberg of Post, Ridley Scott, Martin McDonough for Three Billboards, billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. But yeah, I thought it was pretty well directed. What do you think? No, no, it's de- definitely. I mean, I I, I would kind of lean towards Christopher Nolan just because of the sheer scope and spectacle that Dunkirk is. Hmm. But that's me. Best performance by an actor in a motion picture musical or comedy. James Franco, the disaster artist, is Tommy Wiseau. Got any thoughts on that? Well, you know, sometimes people think that the Golden Globes predict the Oscars, and sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. You know, it, James Franco could easily not be nominated at all for for um, for an Oscar. Right. We'll best we'll or, see. Best original score, The Shape of Water, which I thought was. Pretty Ex- good. Excellent. Frankly, I, I really yeah. liked it. Did you? I, I Here's what it was. I thought Christine summed it up great uh, to, to bring in her armchair film criticism. Uh, I She said the score was, it may not be something I can hum after I leave the movie, but it kept me in the movie while I was watching it. It's very self-contained and it worked. It worked really well. Yeah, like while I was watching the movie when the score would kind of come in, I'd be like, you know what? I dig this. This is good. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but... It's certainly, it's certainly, you know, greased the wheels and helped me enjoy the experience. Yeah, it so. was. It, it had a very like romantic element to it. it like I said, it, for some reason, it reminds me of like a French film. Right. Best motion picture screenplay: Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, for screenplay. And um, I got best animated film for Coco. I guess that's great. Uh, after, after that, it's all TV. And while I'd like to talk about it. This isn't TV podcast, so <laughs> maybe we should just move on. Yeah, we'll save that for the Oscars. All right. Later, I guess. So that's the Golden Globes. Uh, normally, I don't like talking about awards on a podcast, but I appreciate you putting up with me just stumbling my way through that list. Moving on, I suppose we should talk about... You want to talk about Darkest Hour first? Uh, yeah, we can go with Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour. Would you stop interrupting me while I am interrupting you? Darkest Hour is the story of... Winston Churchill coming into his role as prime minister during the early days of World War II uh, and having to decide whether or not he should negotiate with the German forces led by Hitler or if he should try to fight to try to try to say, you know what, we should either step back and, and, and try to talk for peace with this guy since he's dominating Europe or we should fight and, and, and say we're not going to have it. And that's kind of that's kind of where you come into the film. It's right as the former prime minister is being ousted uh, by Parliament in Britain, uh, and they're bringing in Winston Churchill to kind of take on this incredible task of trying to decide where the country is going to go. Is it worth trying to beat 
uh, this incredible force that is dominating Europe, that has taken over France and Belgium, and is is soon to kind of take over what seems to be the world. Uh, is it better to talk about with them about peace, or to try to fight back and say we're not going to take it, and we'll we'll we will die on the hill that is our little island, Britain? It is uh, directed by Joe Wright, who has also directed a handful of, believe it or not, um, Kira Knightley pictures, who I know we're both a fan of, Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> Atonement, Anna Karenina. Uh, Hannah, when that came out, he also did. Uh, oh no, I thought his the writer of this movie. He did the soloist. Uh, the writer of this movie, Anthony McCartan, he wrote Pan. If you remember that movie, yeah, yeah, so that's um, the failed Peter Pan movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, no, he didn't. Who was I looking at that wrote Pan? I don't know. He didn't. He did write, or at least the screenplay for the Theory of Everything. Oh, okay. Which came out last year. That was a big one. He's also writing the screenplay for uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, the Queen film. So I'm interested to see where that goes. But he wrote this movie. Joe Wright directed it. Here's kind of where I come off first in this movie. First, we should probably talk about Gary Oldman's performance. He did win a Golden Globe after all, Andy. <laughs> That's um, right. Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill is great Gary Oldman. It's kind of like really good Nick Cage in a Nick Cage movie. I typically think, for me, if, a, if an actor has done a really, really good job, usually an Oscar-worthy performance, they convince me to a point that they're not the actor I'm looking at on screen. I, th I felt this way about Leonardo DiCaprio in um, The Wolf of Wall Street. Because by the time I got halfway through that movie, I forgot I was watching Leonardo DiCaprio acting like Jordan Belfort. Right. I just look. It felt like I was watching Jordan Belfort. He was channeling that performance so well. I kind of lost track of him. Um, and that's typically where I think a good that that's the mark of a great performance for me. And when I watched this movie, unfortunately, I couldn't suspend my disbelief to a point where I was convinced that Gary Oldman was Winston Churchill. That being said, it was an incredible performance by Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill. I mean, everything he does is on par from gaining an absurd amount of weight to play the role to the accent to the way he walks to the absurd amount of cigars he smokes uh, right. drinking kind of his attitude his energy was brilliant and i think it is absolutely deserving of praise and an award it holds down the whole movie i mean he, he is winston churchill and i thought it was fantastic the way wright kind of presents this character to us and gary oldman as well Winston Churchill, I think, is often remembered by history as being a tough-as-nails kind of guy who's got all these brilliant quotes. He's a really smart man, um, and he was England's greatest prime minister, arguably. Joe Wright presents Winston Churchill as a tough guy, but there's certainly moments of vulnerability in this film, and, and isolation, even, that are present through the cinematography and through the performance. And we come to kind of get to know Winston Churchill in a very sincere, intimate way, Leading up to a point in the film where, I mean, he he admits, he's like, I'm I'm scared, you know? I am i don't know if I can do all of this. Like, right. I don't know if I can handle this. Um, and that's a very, it's a very relatable way to feel. And it kind of tears down the walls I think history have put around this man as being this great individual and makes you realize he's very much human like the rest of us. And that's not only kind of portrayed in the plot and how the film develops, but also in Oldman's performance of the man um notable things about this film things i really enjoyed first off the cinematography um the movie is very claustrophobic and it, it's all it's intentional first it's almost never sunny i think 
maybe the opening scene of this movie, the sun is out. Other than that, it is cloudy. And most of the film is shot indoors in underground bunkers where these military decisions are being made by Britain and, and the British forces and Winston Churchill. It is dark. It is cramped. It is kind of hard to make out in some scenes. Characters are quiet. And it's intentional because Britain is currently... There's this threat of Germany looming over them, and that is ever-present in the way the film is shot. There's a lot of just kind of things hovering in frames, a lot of darkness, a lot of shadows, and a lot of kind of unknown present in the visuals, and that's reflective of the plot and kind of how the characters feel about the world they're in. And it's effective. Now, that being said, understand this is a... It's I mean, I don't want to say it's a dark movie in, in terms of, like, themes. It is. But, like, it's a dark movie just to watch. It's not like something like Manchester on the Sea that might be a little bleak. But for the most part, you can see what's happening on screen. Like, right. you got to turn out the lights. If you're watching this movie with the light on, you're not going to be able to see anything. Right. Um, and it's effective. It really is. And that was one of the things I really liked about the way Joe Wright shot this movie. And a lot of shots, I felt like he was kind of, he, he's experimenting. He's learning. You know, he's trying something new. There's a lot of shots with something in the foreground, a lot of, like, pans and quick tilts, and a lot of top-down shots shots you get in fact the opening shot of the film is a top down and we get a lot of shots of a camera kind of zooming away from people into the sky and also zooming in from the sky um to kind of exemplify how small a character might feel on the world stage especially once in churchill Hmm. it's effective um the cinematography is really engaging the plot moves along at a really good pace and by the end of the movie even though it's two hours um, I was really hoping I'd see more. It ends at a point where you go, okay, well, that seems like a natural conclusion for this story that I'm watching, but I would love to watch more of Gary Oldman and these characters engaging with each other through part of World War II, you know, to, to kind of learn how they did it. Um, mm-hmm. The so church, fantastic... <laughs> the Churchill verse. That's right. So it's a fantastic, <laughs> seriously, it's a fantastic, engaging way to tell this story, and it's very effective. Um, just what, to kind of what part yeah. of the war does it take place in? This is an interesting point. I haven't watched Dunkirk. This movie, having not seen Dunkirk, I think might make an all right double feature because yeah. a huge point of the plot in this film centers around what's happening in Dunkirk and how Winston Churchill can get the entire British army essentially out of that situation. It is a tremendous plot point. So if you've seen Dunkirk, I think you'd enjoy this movie for that. If you haven't and you want to see it, like me, it's very endearing. It presents that story in a really interesting way. I think that Christopher Nolan probably didn't look at it from. It's all behind the scenes. You get almost no footage of what's actually happening in or around Dunkirk. It's all, Dunkirk's on a map here. Here's where the Germans are. How do we get these guys out of this? You know, what do, what do we do here? Do we contact Italy? Do we get a hold of Mussolini and try to engage with peace talks? Or do we say, no, we're going to fight? And, and I think that's a really interesting kind of point. It's also a very British film, traditionally. There are There's one American in it, and he's on the phone for like a three-minute scene. That's it. (laughs) Otherwise, every single character has an accent. Some are thicker than others. Winston Churchill is genuinely kind of difficult to hear, and that is told to you at the beginning of the movie through another character, a typist played by Lily James, brilliantly, I might add. When she's told, because she's supposed to be Winston Churchill's new typist, he mumbles, he talks quietly, he's hard to hear, tune in. Like, they tell you that up front. (laughs) And it's smart because, yeah, you realize, okay, this is this is kind of what I'm in for. What bummed me out about that 
uh, and this is just my screening experience, so if you watch this on your own, enjoy. Uh, I watched this movie in a small town where I, w- I was out of town for a wedding, and the small town I was in had about five people in the theater with me. The two people sitting directly behind me were this older woman and older man. Man, they spoke with the thickest Texas accents I've ever heard in my life, and they could not understand these Brits for a second. Every <laughs> other line, the woman was like, what, what what did he just say? And the man would just say <laughs> verbatim the whole line that the, that the actor had just said on screen. I was like, oh, my God, please. Like, <laughs> we needed, all heard it. He needed optional subtitles. Yeah, like I'm I'm one of those people almost every time. I, like I don't talk in movies, but if somebody I'm with talks to me, you know what I do? I like smile and nod and keep watching. Don't answer them. Don't like encourage them to keep asking you questions. Like just be quiet, you know, like and watch the movie and they this guy u- was <laughs> they could have used pan- a good shushing. Yeah, pan- they could have. A, a good a good stink guy stare from old Andy. Uh yeah, they it killed me. But there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of silence in this movie. There's a lot of isolation. There's a lot of long hanging shots with a lot of emotion in them. So that's that's Darkest Hour. They put the dark in Darkest Hour. They really do. <laughs> and another thing that's interesting to note, this movie isn't called The Darkest Hour. It's just Darkest Hour. And and I didn't know that going in. I I kind of missed that, but it presents this story with just a lot of confidence. It, it, it doesn't pull any punches. It says, here's here's what we're doing, and here's how we're going to tell it, and it's really effective. So I was a fan of Darkest Hour. I would recommend it. I think that's all I have to say on my absurd... God, what was this? Like a... Oh, it was like a 13-minute spiel. All right, I'm out, of, I'm out on Darkest Hour. Let's talk about <laughs> Hostels. Hostels, yes. Hostels. That's not what happened to the fourth when Yellowhawk and his dark soldiers got done with them. And there wasn't a... Don't you dare laugh. There wasn't enough left of those poor men to fill a slop pail. Understand, when we lay our heads down out here, we're all prisoners. I hate them. I got a war bag of reasons to hate them. Hostels is the new uh, Western film by Scott Cooper, who previously did Out of the Furnace, Crazy Heart, and uh, Black Mass. Has only made four films, in- including Hostels. I've um, seen two of those, all things considered. So. I, I've saw, I've saw, I, I have seen Black Mass uh, a couple of years ago, the gangster film with Johnny Depp, um, which fell a little flat to me. It kind of couldn't uh, center itself uh, narratively. Johnny Depp was was fine. He kind of wore a little bit too much makeup. But, you know, it was a promising film. Um, So anyways, Hostels takes place in 1892 and stars Christian Bale as a kind of end of his career Union soldier. And the the time period is very significant because it's kind of the end of the Wild West. It's the end of an era. And uh, his character, uh, Joe Blocker, has been tasked with transporting uh, a prisoner... Um, Native American named uh, Yellowhawk to from New Mexico to Montana in uh, kind of a PR move by the United States in an effort of goodwill as you know to kind of make up for slaughtering the Indians and forcibly removing them we're going to take this one family and we'll take them to their land in Montana so he's got to go from New Mexico to Montana with uh, this kind of uh, enemy 
kind of he has a savage reputation and this is what's interesting is both characters have very bad reputations as far as um they both killed each other's men they hate each other they would probably like to just ha- have at it and go mano y mano right there um but they can't they're put in this situation where they have to be civil and just deal with each other until he can be transported kind of across uh the country and so that's that's the setup and very early into their journey, they come across Rosamund Pike, uh, who her family has just, this happens at the very beginning of the film. Um, her family has been killed, her homestead bird by uh, wild Comanches, and they find her, and she's just kind of uh, in a nervous wreck. She's still holding her dead baby. Uh, like, this This is some really heavy stuff. And and that wow. happens within the first two two minutes of the film. I mean, I think you might get two minutes in and then the wild Comanches come down on horseback with guns. And I mean, they're ready to pillage and kill. And that's how the movie starts. It's kind of like the opening to the revenant. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. That's a very good, good, um, uh, comparison. Um, so that's how it starts. And then they go on this journey, um, across the United States and there's all these incredible themes of, you know, this man is a savage who, what does it mean to be inhuman or human? Um, again, there's this subtext of a a kind of an apology to the native Americans. This is kind of where it falls apart narratively for me as I wasn't sure the direction that, um, kind of the message of the movie. Um, but, but there's these great landscapes, great vistas of the American Southwest, you know, New Mexico, Colorado, Montana, um, and, and the film is very much about, it's about the end of an era, like we said, and, uh, Christian Bale's character is, this is his last thing before he retires, a number of the other soldiers. Hey, hold up. All right. As long as it don't breathe. Well, then don't breathe. <laughs> don't feel right not helping you finish what we started. feel like I let you down, true. You never let me down, not one time. Made many a man have t- taken me in. I won't soon forget it. I'll take you in a hundred times over, Henry. There's no finer soldier. And the, the film is just, <clears throat> it's very deliberate. It's very slow. It takes its time. And it kind of has these bursts of action and, and violence. But there's lots of conversations between Kristen Bale and his other fellow soldiers or with Rosamund Pike about life and death and the situation they're in. And it's one of those things where it just takes its time. And like <laughs> there, where there's long pauses between questions and answers. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's it's a great film. And I, I'm... I'm not real sure where it was going narratively, like I said, but the performances are so good um, that I just kind of overlook it. Uh, through the course of the film, you know, these two characters, the Native Americans and and the Union soldiers, they're <clears throat> enemies, but they kind of be, have uh, an appreciation for each other over the course uh, of the film. <clears throat> uh, but it's very, it's kind of bleak because it's called Hostels and... Everyone is essentially a hostile, depending on who you are, depending on what your point of view is. Like we said at the beginning of the film, 
we see a homestead family getting pillaged and burned to the ground. The very next scene is a group of Union soldiers torturing a captured Native American. Uh, so it's like there, there's no one innocent in this uh, this group of people in the end at this this time. Um, it's also it's about soldiership and kinship. Uh, I thought this was really incredible. We get a lot of scenes of Christian Bale crying over his men, over when he has to say goodbye or when some of them are killed. And it, it's one of these things that we don't normally see in kind of a macho Western film or, or a war film, which is kind of is as well. Uh, so it's really interesting to kind of see that breakdown of the normal machismo and, you know, just like the strength and power kind of thing that you usually see in Westerns, especially older Westerns. Excellent performances, excellent landscapes. Uh, Rosamund Pike, uh, she's pretty incredible. Um, she, her character, she does this thing where, where she's about to fall apart the entire movie. Like you just, she's on the verge of a nervous breakdown, but just manages to keep it together through lots of tragedy and personal pain and torture. It's just, you know, it's like at any moment she could just freak out and just run into the woods and you never see her again. And, and she doesn't like, I mean, she's got that glazed look and kind of, I can't believe this happened to me, but she keeps it together and it's 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 a really incredible performance uh from her huh well shoot i feel like i have questions but i don't know how much i want to dig into it um one thing first off i didn't know the premise for this movie i actually hadn't really even seen trailers for it and when i told you i, I was going to see darkest hour you said oh cool i'm gonna go see hostel so i was like well, i had to google it what is that yeah um <laughs> and already looking at looking at just the plot as you described it it sounds like a movie that would kind of be up my alley because I love movies like that. Two characters who should not should should be eviscerating each other but can't for some reason and they kinda have to cope. I, I don't want to say it's like a buddy cop movie, but like I, I get I get where you're coming from. It's like two characters who are at odds with each other in every way and have to have to kinda get along. Yeah, um, I mean it, I love that kind of stuff. The little psychological tweaks and how you can kind of play with that. Yeah, they talk about, you know, they have well, you know, Christian Bale doesn't want to take take him across, you know, the country. And he said, well, he's slaughtered our people, our soldiers. Um, you know, he's a savage. And then someone answers, well, he's like, well, you two should get along because he's guilt, just as guilty of slaughtering uh, Native Americans as well. He has a reputation as being a, a butcher. Um, so it's this kind of thing where there's no one's hands are clean. Everyone is done a lot of uh, a lot of killing on on both sides but they're kind of again it's about the end of an era the end of the wild west the end of of kind of uh oppression of native american people where the united states is starting to try to treat them them better right how i i know you look at the poster you can see three names on there christian bale rosamund pike i know them i like them i'm sure rosamund pike was great right uh, how was uh, West Study? West Studi is that how you say his name? Um, I'm not sure. So he he plays a uh, Chief Yellowhawk, um, and and it's not just him; it's him and his family that that they have to be transported. Uh, he's very good, and it's important to say that that uh, Christian Bale speaks in in Navajo or or Cheyenne, maybe. It, he speaks in a na- Native American language, and that tells you how long he's been doing this. That he he speaks their language. So a lot of the conversation is in. Cheyenne or, or Navajo uh, or whatever it is and uh, it, it's excellent because it's a lot of their 
I mean, like I said, they're kind of at the end of this very long struggle, which neither of them has won, and they philosophize, and there, there's a lot of, you know, really good one-line quotes and one-line this, and um, uh, he was good. I, I kind of wish that they, had, the Native Americans in the film had had a bigger role. You know, if this film was, is supposed to be maybe an apology for the treatment of, of Native Americans at that time, well, they weren't featured very much. I mean, it's it's a great that there were actual Native American actors. That in itself is a big step, but I, I thought that they could have uh, had a larger role. Something that I think is iconic in most all Western films are the sweeping landscape shots. How did this one do? Yeah, no, it was it was excellent. That's one of the things that stood out to me is you get a change of scenery from the southwest to the Colorado area to more forested um, Montana area. Uh, there's a scene I'm I'm pr- pretty sure it's it's the same scene in um, Django Unchained uh, in one of the scenes where where he shoots a guy from a really long way. I felt like it was the exact same location. Um, oh wow. <laughs> Uh, but no, I mean the the landscape was good, and it's just so gr- so gritty. Everyone's dirt. I mean, it's eighteen ninety two. Everyone's dirty. Everyone has a giant beard. You know, they have to camp out every night. Uh, no one probably has any soap. Right. Um, that whole thing. Uh, and there's some there's good some good co- supporting characters. Uh, Jesse Plemons, uh, who I first saw on on Breaking Bad, and uh, has kind of been in a lot of movies lately. He he's in it. Uh, ben right. Fos- Met- methed out Matt Damon. Yeah. Him. Yeah. yeah. Um. Ben Foster, uh, t- uh, Timothy, Cal- oh, I can't remember how to say his last name. Uh, he's been in, but he was in Lady Bird and uh, Call Me By Your Name. Oh, uh, wow. So he's kind of, you know, an up-and-coming uh, young ac- actor as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it was excellent. It, I mean, it's really brutal. There's there's this... Um, uh, kind of phrase that's said often called uh you know he cut him from stem to stern that's that phrase is repeated probably uh, three or four times oh wow and and in reference to each other both to you know the native americans and and the union soldiers as well uh and so it, it's it's a it's a brutal film that doesn't shy away from kind of the wildness of of the wild west it definitely doesn't romanticize that that lifestyle or how you know, the traditional Western idolizes like the cowboy or that period in time. Hmm. Well, would you recommend hostels? I definitely would, especially if you're a Western fan. I know a lot of people always say uh, they're like, Oh, the Western is dead or, and it's like, we get lots of Westerns every year. Maybe not as many as when it was the heyday of the Western, but every year there's several Westerns and they're usually pretty good. Right. So, Something I did want to ask about, and I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, but before we wrap up, is Christian Bale, like, should he have just been born an American? Because he plays <laughs> Americans all the time, like, and he's really good at it, to be fair. You know, I didn't I didn't know for probably, like, eight years that he was British. Yeah. Because I only saw him in American movies, and I just had never heard him speak in a different accent so I didn't even know that he wasn't American for the long, <laughs> longest time right he's he's one of those you wouldn't know until you, you watch an interview with him and figure out oh wow like I gosh I don't know yeah he I mean he he is excellent in this film he's got a great mustache um, and like I said there, there's lots of just slow conversations between him and his men or him and him and Chief Yellowhawk 
you know, about their situation and it just takes, it really takes its time. And some people might say it's maybe a little bit too slow, but I, I really like, enjoyed that, that part huh. of it. Well, I think this is the longest episode we've done so far. <laughs> we talked about three movies though. We had that going for us. That, yeah, that counts did. for something. Uh, any other thoughts before we wrap up this week? Uh, no, what's, uh, what, what's coming out next week? What's on the horizon? I know what I want to go see, and I don't know if you're going to go see it. And I'm going to try to go see it in theaters, but if I can't, I'm just going to watch it at home. Uh, the Room is going to be out January 10th, nationwide. That's right. Um, we haven't talked about, well, we've talked about it a little bit on this show. Um, not enough for any, like, genuine critique capacity. So I don't know if it's worth chatting about, uh, but I'm going to go check that out. What, what are you going to go see? Um, let's see. I usually use this time of year to catch up on... Uh, this Oscar stuff. I still, I want to see I, Tanya. I need to see, uh, three billboards. Uh, there's a lot to catch up on. So I'll I wouldn't mind seeing I, Tanya. Yeah. That, that one, that one's got, that one's a good one. And of course, next, next Tuesday, Blade Runner 2049 comes out on DVD. That's exactly what I was just looking up. I was like, <laughs> when does the Blade Runner 2049 Blu-ray come out? I can't wait. I'm excited. I almost bought it on digital earlier this week. Just cause I want to watch it again. That bad. Right. Yeah. I, it's going to be great. Blade Runner 2049. Go see it if you have. <laughs> yeah, and we'll have to do uh, you know, a re a, a review just because I don't think we've done that on this show as much as we've talked about it. Yeah, I, I would love to do a formal Blade Runner. Maybe that's what we'll do next week. Blade Runner 2049. Finally get into it. Um, also, when does when does it come out on Blu-ray? Do you know, I think it's actually January already. 9th. Oh. So that comes out tomorrow. tomorrow. All right. Well, good to know. It comes out tomorrow. <laughs> Check out it if you haven't seen it. Um. All right, well, for, for Off Script, the home of bold cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching, or listening. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>